Uh, I'm Eric Peitch, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Welcome to episode 3.1 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions, and 10 Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside. We also have some additional support from Black Diamond and Peeps. Live, ski, repeat. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Fall is definitely in the air. We got our first rain in Southern Oregon pretty much of the summer. We've had a crazy wildfire season, and it really feels good to get some some rain on the trails and some water to, to help these firefighters out. Uh, many of these fires are still standing up, um, even into last week. It's crazy. Late season here. Um, but we're excited that fall is in the air, and that means that winter is around the, the corner here. Uh, excited to be back with the podcast this season. I think you're going to find uh, we have some great guests that will be on the show. And I, I really want to encourage you to engage with the podcast. You can engage in a few different ways. Just reach out and email me. Let me know how you think I'm doing. Um, let me know if you want to be on the show. I can I can certainly arrange that. I'll be uh, I'll be talking in a, in a minute about the some of the folks that we'll have on the show, some of the guests that we'll have on the show upcoming. And you can email me questions, and I'll I'll work those questions into the interview with those guests during this fall interview tour that I have coming up. Yeah, that's right. I got the van all packed. I'm actually going to leave today from Oregon, head over to Salt Lake, and then make my way to uh, Breckenridge, Colorado, where I'll be at the the 17th annual Colorado Snow and Avalanche Workshop. Um, so if, if you're in the area, you should swing by these regional snow and avalanche workshops are a great way to get some continuing education, dust off the cobwebs on your snow brain, and also do quite a bit of networking with other avalanche professionals or, or recreationists that enjoy recreating in the winter backcountry environment um, and want to be a little more avalanche savvy. So come on by the booth. I'll have a booth set up at Seesaw. That's uh, Friday October 5th, this coming Friday. Um, yeah, hit me up. I'll have a van pretty much full of beer from, from our friends at 10 Barrel Brewing. So if you see my van with a, got a little avalanche hour magnet on the back, come on by, sip a cold brew, chat some avalanche stuff. Um, I'll also be in Summit County for a few days after the workshop if you'd like to schedule a time to sit down and Record anything related to snow and avalanches. It could be a story of an experience 
maybe an announcement for the community, some news, or even just posing a question to the to the greater Avalanche community. Um, I mentioned before, if you want to send in some questions for some upcoming guests that I have lined up, uh, I'll be listing those off, and then I'll, I'll post those on my website as well. You can check out the list of upcoming guests at www.theavalanchehour.com. But I'll have uh, Jamie Yont from the Colorado Department of Transportation. Brian Lazar, he's the Deputy Director of the CAIC, Colorado Avalanche Information Center. Also, Ray Mumford. Ray has been around the Colorado Department of Transportation um, for a long time and has overseen the, or he's retired now, but he was overseeing the, the avalanche mitigation work that the DOT was doing there. Got Roger Coit of Colorado Mountain College Avalanche Science Program. I'm excited to hear a little bit more about what CMC has going on um, there. We've got Mark Mueller. He's another CAIC forecaster. I'll have Billy Rankin. He's a forecaster for Irwin Guides out of Crested Butte, as well as hopefully Ben Pritchett. Ben, if you're listening to this, I'd like to nail down a date and time to come talk to you. Uh, again, a CAIC forecaster in Crested Butte. Um, and long time, long time, uh, airy guy as well. So if you think you might have any questions that you'd like me to work into those interviews, feel free to reach out. You can email me at the avalanche hour podcast at gmail.com or find a, a link, the contact link from my website, triple dub dot the avalanche hour.com or just reach out on social media at the avalanche hour podcast. You know, one of the most fulfilling parts for me doing this podcast is the opportunity to meet and engage with new people from our community. Uh, this summer, my wife and I traveled up to Northwest Montana for a vacation, and I was able to sit down with Eric Peitch from the USGS. Eric has a diverse background and is a heavy hitter in the field of research related to snow and avalanches. But he's also dedicated to keeping it relevant to the practitioner. So today's episode, we're going to highlight an interview with Eric, and I hope you enjoy. Here we go. Eric, it's nice to sit down with you today in the beautiful Flathead Valley here. I'd like you to just introduce yourself, talk about some of your past and current roles in the snow and avalanche world, as well as some of your um, research projects, past and, and present, that you're working on these days. Sure, yeah. Uh, glad to uh, glad to have you here. So, I guess, sort of sketching out um, my snow and avalanche career, I started ski patrolling um, in Lake Tahoe at Alpine Meadows and uh, ski patrolled there for a number of years and then decided that I really enjoyed the the avalanche component of that work and eventually uh, made my way to Bozeman for, uh, for a master's degree at Montana State University and uh, worked with um, Carl Berkland over there and uh, while I was in grad school, 
was hired to be uh, one of the forecasters for the Going to the Sun Road Avalanche Program here in Glacier National Park for the U.S. Geological Survey, USGS. And so I started doing that in the spring, roughly from late March into the middle of June, some seasons. So while I was finishing up my master's, I would come up here in the spring and do that. And then once I finished up my master's in late 2008, uh, we moved up here to the Flathead Valley in 2009 in Northwest Montana. And I've been working for the USGS ever since. Um, the, my, my, my role is, or my title is a physical scientist. So I just sort of do everything from, um, well, research, of course, but snow and avalanche research, even some glacier research uh, in the park. And in, as part of that, we had a collaboration with the Flathead National Forest. And I served as the director and one of the avalanche forecasters for the Flathead Avalanche Center for about four years. And now my, I'm working on my PhD back at MSU again and uh, focusing on couple of topics within the PhD, but focusing mostly on research now and not forecasting um, and still sort of overseeing the going to the Sun Road forecasting program where we combine a lot of our research and it allows us to basically answer research questions that are operationally driven. So, you know, what as forecasters do we want to know? And that's what we try and try and answer with the research that we do on the going to the Sun Road. So yeah, currently I'm working on a couple of projects for my PhD. One is using dendrochronology, so using tree rings and looking at avalanches, uh, avalanche history, in especially areas where you, you don't have a long observational record. And so we've collected data from four different mountain ranges up here and over 600 samples from the region. So we'll be able to provide hopefully a really cool and relatively long avalanche chronology for this region in the northern rockies and then so that's just a quick synopsis of that work and then the the other project i'm working on is using um drones or uh unoccupied aerial systems um uas's uh to to map snow depth changes in complex alpine terrain so the the Bottom line there is we're basically flying drones with a high resolution or a really good camera flying it, you know, depending on the timing of storms and such and melting, we're roughly doing, uh, collecting these images about once a week. And so we're actually able to look at changes in these, this complex terrain due to wind loading and, or melting, um, or other processes and, uh, look at that change on a pretty high resolution scale, um, just by remote sensing. So we're looking at like, you know, changes in the vertical from five to 15 centimeters. And so, um, you know, the, the nice thing about that is we're able to, to sort of demonstrate that we can fly drones and get a good sense, produce snow depth maps and get a good sense of the change of, uh, in snow depth without, without actually, you know, going into, um, those areas where we actually would need to probe around and, you know, I sort of, one of the things I typically say is we always say when it's wind loaded, you know, it's, we, we sort of estimate, let's say if you're a forecaster and you, and you're trying to plan out, um, your mitigation for, for the morning, 
And, you know, you say, well, this is what the winds look like. You know, this is how much it snowed or not. And you kind of give your best estimate as to, you know, how much new snow might be in a wind-loaded area. Um, but this sort of demonstrates that there, you know, if you, if you have a drone and you can, you have the capabilities, you can fly and sort of get an idea of that change without actually, uh, again, having to go into those, um, those areas and put yourself and, and sort of, uh, you know, increase your exposure there. You decrease it by being able to fly. Um, so anyways, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the, uh, the other project that we're, we're sort of working on in, in the avalanche realm. That seems like some pretty cutting edge stuff. I've, I've got a few questions about that, but um, I was hoping you could clarify the relationship between the Park Service and the USGS in the forecast operations for Glacier National Park and specifically the Going to the Sun Road. Yeah, so the Going to the Sun Road program is a, uh, it's a joint avalanche forecasting program so we have typically one full-time usgs position and two full-time uh, national park service forecasters and the uh you know the, again as i mentioned the goal there is for us in the usgs is to be able to you know help forecast but also collect data and be able to again try and answer some of those practical questions um, with the research that we do and so you know, we as the USGS sort of oversee and, and run the program, but we work very closely with the National Park Service road crew and have you know, daily morning briefings with the road crew. And, and typically that's who we're forecasting for. Those are the folks that are in avalanche terrain um, the, the most throughout the season. But it's an internal avalanche forecast that we put together. And it, uh, you know, it goes out to all personnel in the park, but again, we, we typically, you know, focus on the road crew cause they're the ones that are up there, uh, the most. And, uh, the nice thing about it too, is that, you know, it's, it's a little different than your sort of typical highway forecasting operation and that we can forecast, but we're also out there, you know, most days when they are, and, you know, things are changing, um, perhaps more rapidly or not quite what we expected, then we can easily communicate with them and, and express, you know, what's changing or not. And, uh, you know, let them know that, um, they, you know, can continue working or not. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a good working relationship between those two agencies for sure. All right. So, so what's this going to the sun road all about for those of us who maybe are a little bit less familiar with with uh, Glacier National Park and, and some of the attractions there. Can you give some stats on the road and um, talk about closures and, and the operation of reopening it in the springtime for the summer tourist season? Yeah, for sure. So a little background is the Sun Road is about an 80-kilometer stretch of road that goes from West Glacier, Montana, on the west side of the Continental Divide to St. Mary on the east side of the Continental Divide. And... In the winter, uh, roughly about 50 kilometers of that roadway is closed um, all winter long. And so it typically shuts down, I'd say, in you know late October, some years even earlier. And then in early April, the park begins their annual uh, clearing and plowing of the road. And so, you know, as you can imagine, that entails 
moving through a lot of snow, um, whole season's worth, including avalanche debris that's piled up in the uh, runout zones and in the track. So the road travels through 37 major avalanche pads and anywhere from, you know, really large avalanche pads that are capable of uh, size four and and even five, uh, I'd say, um, avalanches. And uh, the road travels through, again, some of the runout zones, but also travels through the middle of the track in a lot of these, these pads once, of course, the road reaches what they call the alpine section. So in the spring, road crew begins plowing in the lower elevations and basically just works their way up the road and the forecasting program again you know we we put out a daily forecast for park personnel that are working and traveling and on in and along the road um and it's uh you know the median opening day um of the road used to be june 8th and there was this uh they just finished up a 10-year reconstruction or rehabilitation of the road and so the, uh, a lot of the recent opening times have been limited by construction on the road. So I'd say typically now the road opens in, uh, you know, late June is, is the typical opening. And of course, you know, the surrounding community depends greatly on the, on the park. And uh, a lot of visitors, you know, want to see the attractions along the road and, and, and drive along the road and, so once the road opens in late June, then we get the you know the influx of tourism um, even more so than than in the in the winter. So the place the, the park is it's a fairly quiet place in the winter because the road is closed. Mm-hmm. So th- so then at that point, uh, the USGS forecaster and the two park service forecasters come in, and, and you guys start gathering data. Like in in April, you start looking at that snowpack, or are you guys tracking that all winter long. Um, and then talk about kind of some of the tools that you have. Do you have any mitigation tools or is it just all passive avalanche forecasting and, and avoidance for, for the hazard there for the workers? Right. So we, we certainly keep track of what's happening throughout the whole winter. Um, you know, that makes things easier instead of coming in blindly. And so, and again, we, we collaborate with the Flathead Avalanche Center still and, uh, you know, work with them um, on a couple of, um, just in general for their forecasting, we help them out and are hoping to do some more focused research with them in the future as well. So in terms of mitigation there, there is no use of explosives, uh, in the park, um, for, for avalanche control, uh, along the going to the sun road. Um, the, uh, and I'll sort of caveat that with that, uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe has, railroad has a forecasting program along the southern edge of the park. So the railroad travels along right along the edge, but of course the avalanche paths and starting zones are in the park. And so they can apply for an emergency mitigation permit where they're allowed to use explosives. But along the going of the sun road, we don't, uh, we rely purely on forecasting and, you know, in terms of, in terms of the sort of thresholds that we use, I would, we obviously don't have any, you know, firm thresholds, uh, in terms of when we think we need to pull or, or recommend that the, the road crew pull out of the, out of those areas. Um, and you know, this again, sort of gets back to the collaboration that we have with the park service and, and us at the USGS where we're, we're out there forecasting every day and we're, so we're always collecting data and we have a really nice data set of avalanche occurrence, uh, from 
2003 to current. Um, and it's pretty spatially robust as well. And for instance, one of the, one of the studies we did was just looking at wet slab and glide avalanche occurrence uh, along the going to the sun road. And, you know, we, through sort of a statistical model showed that, um, mean air temperature and max air temperature and then snow settlement uh, can be important variables but you know just like any model we're certainly not going to hang our hat on um on you know anything especially in the world of avalanche forecasting and so we use those as guidelines you know just sort of another tool in the toolbox that allows us to to sort of say okay well you know this is the first rapid warm-up of the season that we have coming and you know, maybe this is the, we obviously we look at snowpack characteristics and, you know, is the snowpack, has it, has it experienced any sort of, of water moving through it or, or wetting, um, or is it still a pretty dry snowpack and, and that drives a lot of it too. So it's not just these sort of meteorological variables that we're worried about. Um, and so, you know, in terms of, of those thresholds, we don't really, again, we use them just more of a, more as a, as a, as a, another tool. Um, and that's helped us a lot for sure, but you know, it's, uh, the, the wet snow avalanche game is, is an interesting one. There's, there's been, or there, there's more and more research being done, uh, particularly from folks at the SLF in um, in Switzerland. And, you know, they've done some, some good work, uh, looking at wet, uh, wet snow avalanches and, so I think, you know, there's more to be done. Um, but that's kind of the, the cool thing about at least working on the sun road is, you know, being able to do, um, some of the wet's, you know, a lot of this wet snow research, um, or, or these wet snow projects that, um, there, there's a lot, there's, you know, still many questions that, that need to be answered. So that's kind of the, or one of the fun parts of it as well. So you've done a lot of research on, on glide avalanches and wet slabs. Can you just talk about the difference between those two types of avalanches for our listeners and, and why, why are these so hard to predict? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, you know, wet slab avalanche is, you know, typically involves water moving through the snowpack and, uh, sort of the, you know, it, water moving through the snowpack and when water reaches say a, an interface, whether that be a weak layer or sometimes even, you know, a crust, um, with maybe a weak layer on top of that crust, then instead, you know, um, sort of the opposite of, of a dry snow avalanche, it's instead of a, an increase in stress, we're basically decreasing the strength of that layer as water moves laterally along that layer. And so when that happens, um, then we have the release of a slab, of course. And a glide avalanche is the basically um, the, an avalanche of the, the entire full depth snowpack. What happens there is the same thing in terms of water movement and production in the snowpack. Water moves through the snowpack to the bottom, but moves all the way through the uh, to the the base of the snowpack at the ground snow interface. And then there, the water will, you know, depending on the substrate, so what's lying underneath the snowpack, the water can either if it's soil maybe uh, sort of be absorbed by some of that soil, but if it's sort of rock slabs and uh, it's sort of impermeable, then the water is basically going to move laterally again, essentially lubricate that surface. And then you can get uh, a glide avalanche on that slope as well. And so we, we looked at, um, areas uh, along the going to the sun road where, 
we what we call repeat offenders. So these glide avalanches occur in the same spot every single year. And so we kind of looked at some of the terrain characteristics. And of course, you know, as I mentioned, those areas where you have smooth rock slabs, that's where we, we, uh, we see sort of the most frequent uh, or the, the annual repeat offenders as well as um, some of the largest glide avalanches as well. And so um, glide avalanches, you know, are, I think a little harder um, to predict in terms of timing. Again, we kind of have a good sense of where they're going to occur because they occur in the same spot every year, typically. But the timing is really difficult, and that gets to sort of the, the timing of wet slabs as well. Um, but again, the wet slab, you know, the, the difficulty there is really understanding the, the right uh, ingredients in terms of do you have a weak layer? Is the weak layer still developed well enough? And then, you know, have you had sort of a nice gradual warming throughout the season? Or is it just sort of this really rapid warming, you know, first rapid warm up of the season? And is it sort of just shock loading the, the system, so to speak? Um, and that's certainly something we look out for. And, you know, in terms of glide avalanches, uh, we, at least along the Going to the Sun Road, not only deal with, you know, the warming from uh, solar radiation and air temp, but we're, we're also looking at rain on snow events, um, for both glide and wet slab, but we've seen, you know, some large glide avalanches released with some rain events and at least every year. So I'd say that, you know, the difficulty is in the timing. And as I mentioned earlier, the, you know, these sort of questions about wet snow avalanches are, are sort of still ripe for the picking. And that's one of them is, is, trying to get a better handle or at least constrain the timing of uh, when we think these avalanches might occur. Hmm. So you mentioned you have, you know, data for the road back to 2003. Um, any correlations with some climate change going on with the release of wet slabs and, and glide avalanches with, with your history of the sun road? So, you know, we haven't looked at any trends yet, um, just because 2003 to now, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's nice, you know, 15 years is nice, but it's not quite long enough to look at, uh, to look at any trends there. And so what we're, as I mentioned, some of the, the tree ring work that we're, um, currently working on, you know, we're hoping to, um, we, again, we collected over 600 samples and, so far through our analysis, our samples go back to the late 1600s. Um, and wow. you know, not that many samples that go back that far, but I'd say for at least the bulk of the 20th century, we have a lot of samples. And so I, what we're hoping to do, and this is, we're, we're sort of right in the, the heart of the analysis right now. Um, looking at, you know, some of the, uh, some of the, it can, or I guess we're, we're trying to identify, you know, can we look at any trends in avalanche occurrence, uh, at least here in the Northern Rockies, um, through, through this tree ring work. And so, um, you know, unfortunately I don't have an answer. Um, I mean, other studies have sort of shown that, you know, there is, um, there will be at least an increase in, uh, you know, in, in wet snow avalanches in, in the future. Um, and if we sort of take some of the research in the, just the snow community and not, not avalanche focused. Um, you know, there's a colleague of mine, Greg Peterson at the USGS has looked, uh, 
at timing in the Northern Rockies of, of, uh, spring onset. And it's been, others have done it for other areas as well, but pretty much across the West there, um, you know, spring onset is occurring earlier and earlier and we can sort of, you know, um, sort of assume that what snow avalanches will, will perhaps follow that as well. So we might see, you know, more wet snow avalanches earlier in the season. Let's say, you know, let's say for instance, in you know, any given ski area that might shut down operations in April and, you know, sort of experience some wet snow avalanche issues, perhaps later in their season may see more of these avalanches now earlier in the season. Um, and so, yeah, again, you know, in terms of quantifying it, we, we hopefully will be able to say something, um, whether there's a trend or not in, in some of the data that we've collected for this tree ring project. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, the, along the going of the sun road, uh, I think we'll need to wait just a few more years to sort of tease out any sort of trend, at least in that area. Sure. Yes. And especially with some earlier season rain on snow events that we're seeing pretty much all over the West, it seems like in the last 10 years, uh, you know, starting to see January rain events and um, certainly bringing to light some wet snow issues earlier in the season that might be a little bit more short-lived, but um, I've certainly noticed that. Yeah, and and I mean that's a great point as well. Where you know it's not just this earlier onset of of spring or more frequent wet snow avalanches in late winter, but you know rain on snow events um, occurring midwinter. Uh, again, we we need a little bit of a longer record, at least for here. Um, to see if there's an increase, um, in wet snow avalanches due to that. But again, there, if we take, you know, again, from the snow, snow community there, there in a lot of locations have been an increase in rain on snow events, um, particularly in, you know, the Pacific Northwest, um, which obviously being very close to here, um, is, is fairly relevant for us. And so the, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, if you talk to a lot of folks, um, practitioners from from sort of all over anecdotally at least and i think i've heard from quite a few folks that say yeah it, it seems like we're starting to see more wet snow avalanches and again that's just anecdotal but um this is coming from folks who've been there for you know for decades at their respective ski areas um so yeah I, again i think that's another field where at least in the u.s um, again they've sort of looked at some of this stuff in in, in europe but here in the u.s i think um we uh we we can still you know we can still answer a lot of those questions um in terms of in in, in the climate context mm -hmm. so tree rings i want, I want to hear more about this tree ring project <laughs> i'm i'm kind of imagining all these uh core samples from trees and trying to figure out if i could tell if there was an avalanche that hit that tree in the late 1600s as you <laughs> as you said <laughs> yeah what's that process like and can you talk a little bit more about that research yeah. Um, it, it's actually pretty fun research. I mean, the cool thing is, um, you know, it's a lot of the field work is obviously most of it is done in the summer because we're basically tromping around these avalanche paths, um, and finding dead and down trees, uh, and basically taking cross sections from them. So we call those cookies. Um, so, you know, you can take, you can use cores, um, from a tree where you basically put the core in the tree and you twist it and, you know, pull out a little, um, thin core. Uh, and if you get enough cores from a tree, you can, you, 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 
might be able to see the signal. The nice thing about cross sections is you get the whole tree. And so what we've done then is we have a lab in Bozeman and we have uh, um, really experienced folks that are, they're, you know, cross daters and, and folks who can look for scars on these tree rings. And they, uh, uh, you know, they're able to basically, we sort of categorize avalanche signals in, in the tree ring um, into five categories. One being like obvious scar on the tree, you know, like this is a tree that you might see um, standing up that has, you know, an obvious scar. It's in the middle or along, right along the edge of an avalanche path. And, uh, you know, it looks like it's been hit a lot. Uh, so when we look at the tree rings, you can basically see like a little brown mark, um, you know, or, or a big brown mark, depending on how, uh, how powerful the avalanche was. And we, uh, we can then, you know, we've cross-dated the tree, for instance, knowing sometimes we know when it's been killed because maybe there was a recent large avalanche and, you know, it's obvious that it was from that. But what we typically do is you can correlate these, the tree ring widths from the, from your samples with say, um, you know, a tree outside of the avalanche path. So the ring widths correlate, that's how you cross date it. And then from there, we now know which year each ring is and wherever that signal or scar might be. And it's not just, you know, a little black mark. Another thing it can be is then the rings are perhaps, um, really close together then Maybe there was an avalanche and then subsequent years, that tree basically needed to compensate for getting hit. And so it's sort of, um, the, wherever it got hit, the rings are really close together. And perhaps on the downhill side, those rings are further apart because it's basically putting a lot more growth on the downhill side to compensate for getting hit on the uphill side. Mm -hmm. So that's another signal. And basically, yeah, we take these cross sections, look at them under the microscope for all these signals. So we're not missing anything. And we can then, for every single sample, we can look at, um, you know, how many or what years there might have, there, there was an avalanche, um, at least that hit that tree. Now, you know, some, uh, some of the sort of, or one of the issues is that there might, you know, we might be under catching, so to speak, the, uh, the, the number of avalanches. But depending on where you're sampling, like we're, if we're sampling at the bottom of the avalanche path, you know, we're, we're really concerned with large magnitude avalanches that are going to reach all the way, uh, to the, to the runout zone of the path or, or beyond. Um, so anyways, yeah, we, uh, we looked at 12 avalanche paths, um, in this region and sampled a minimum of 40 samples from each path and up to 140. Um, so yeah, we have over 600 samples and, uh, we're, we're still sort of working through them. It's, it's a lot of work to be able to process these. Cause so you have, let's say, you know, you have this cross section and, you know, you just cut it with a chainsaw and now it's fairly, um, it's, you know, fairly rough. And so we have to sand it down so that it's really smooth and that you can, when you put another microscope, you can see things really clearly. And that takes a lot of work as you can imagine. Some of these cross sections are really big, um, you know, and in diameter, some of them are, are three feet, um, and so it's, you know, some of them are, are large trees. So yeah, it's a lot of work. And then to be able to cross date and then uh, date the avalanche events takes quite a bit of time. Um, so that's, we're still working through some of them, but doing analysis at least for, for about half of them right now. So then are you cross-referencing with some, any weather station data, you know, obviously not for some of these 
the date back pretty far, but in, in more recent years. Yeah. So we're, uh, we're looking at, you know, a number of climate and weather variables, um, you know, things like monthly, um, even, you know, things like monthly indexes of, um, El Nino or PDO, which is the Pacific decadal oscillation. So some of these longer term climate patterns. Um, but then we're also looking at, um, monthly and annual, um, you know, snowfall or precipitation. And, uh, that's, that's exactly where we're at now in the analysis is basically trying to see if any of these, uh, other variables, um, can help explain some of these large magnitude, uh, avalanche years. And so that again, as I mentioned earlier is, you know, hopefully one way we'll be able to sort of tackle the, the climate question, you know, are there any climate patterns that we can associate or are there any relationships, um, with a record this long in the, in the, uh, in any of these climate variables. Well, well, that's certainly PhD caliber stuff right there, <laughs> Eric. And it sounds like you're doing a great job to bring it back to the practitioner level as well and, and make that relevant for everybody else. So sounds like great work. And yeah, I mean, that, that's the goal, you know, I, um, just sort of my background and my, the, my training, um, and, you know, working with, with Carl at MSU and Jordi Hendricks, um, those are, uh, you know, folks who have a, um, a real appreciation for and really stress the, you know, the need to make sure that our, our research is, is focused and, and applicable. Um, and at the USGS, that's what our mission is, is to basically, you know, do research so that, uh, it can be used and, um, so, you know, in terms of the climate work, I think that that, you know, understanding what's what's happened in the past will hopefully allow us to understand what might happen in the future. Um, and again, you know, if we can tease out any trends in terms of avalanche frequency, then great. Um, that might hope or might hopefully help us into the future as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so so talking again about the going to the sun road and forecasting for that. Um, have there been some times or, or are you able to talk about any surprises that you've had happen there as a forecaster, you know, um, that, that you weren't expecting or anything that caught you off guard, any accidents, any, anything like that? Um, so since I started, um, we, I mean, there's always, you know, there's always surprises every year, <laughs> um, but, uh, I, you know, since I started, you know, knock on wood, fortunately there's been, uh, <laughs> There, there, um, have been no incidents in terms of avalanche incidents. Um, the, you know, in the past, uh, their folks have, have died on the road, working on the road. And that was in the early, you know, when they first started plowing the road, um, in the late thirties and, um, and in the mid fifties, uh, bulldozer operator was knocked off the road, um, well, actually triggered the avalanche, but, um, was, was injured and not killed, um. And then in 2005, there was a, uh, an operator was again in an area, uh, with the bulldozer and was moving snow off the road. And, uh, as he was moving snow off, basically, you know, triggered, put, dumped a bunch of snow onto the downhill side on that slope and triggered an avalanche. Um, so an avalanche didn't come down on, on the operator and the machine, but it was a very skilled operator and he was able to, uh, basically maneuver and only went down. I don't know, maybe a hundred meters or so, a couple hundred meters, um, off the road and was totally fine. Um, so that was, that was good. 
and was uh, they were able to bring the machine back up um i think within a couple days uh and so you know uh, in terms of close calls um you know i i think in terms of surprises along the the going to the sun road getting back to what i've mentioned earlier i guess is the the timing, uh, you know, even when we're, when we're talking about forecasting for wet, loose avalanches, I mean, wet, loose avalanches are pretty well understood, right? And we have a good sense of what the triggers are and when they're going to happen. Um, but what I found is that, you know, we can forecast them for the day and say they're going to happen. But again, it's this timing issue. And when you're forecasting for say a road crew that's working along the road and you know there are obviously some safe spots between avalanche pads um then so they let's say they're moving from a safe spot and they want to get through this next path and you know for us to be able to say well we think you're good to go <laughs> you know um i think it's it's uh i, I think the timing is the is the challenge you know in, in trying to determine um when they're going to start you know fortunately you know, there are these early warning signs and we all know about those. Um, but you know, there's, so, you know, if we see some small, let's say wet sloughs, for instance, you know, starting to, to occur and maybe even small dribbles on the road, um, you know, that might be, that might be tolerable for the road crew. But, um, you know, I think it, it can change really rapidly moving from that, that small magnitude to even larger wet loose where, you know, they might not knock a machine off the road, but we also have people walking along the road working. Um, and so, you know, I think that the timing and the, 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 uh, the rate at which things change is, you know, still presents a challenge for us forecasting up there. Yeah. So oftentimes when we're, when we're skiing in the backcountry, you know, we can, we have some uncertainty. We can create margins through terrain. Well, you obviously forecasting on the road can't choose your terrain. Your terrain is kind of set in place, right? So right. I would imagine your margin is is as you've been saying, timing, right? So yeah. So pulling the road crew out of there maybe a little bit earlier on on a warmer day, or is is that kind of how you think about it? Yeah, exactly, and that's that's a great point. Um, where we yeah we can't choose the terrain. Um, you know, we when we we teach avalanche classes, it's all you know, the answer is the terrain, right? Um, but on the road, you're, you're, you're stuck with the terrain. Um, so yeah, I'd say that that's sort of our, the, a tool that we use in terms of, I mean, as I mentioned, we, we don't do any explosives mitigation. So, you know, our, our, our biggest tool for mitigation is, um, just removal, um, you know, move the, the personnel out of the area or, you know, basically say, we recommend you not work up there or travel up there. Um, or maybe you can travel, in certain areas, but not, you know, not in, in certain paths. Um, and so, and that's a big part of it too, looking at sort of the spatial, um, variability, you know, across, um, not, not, not across a slope, but, you know, in, a, in an avalanche path. So maybe that they're okay working in one part of the path because it's a different aspect in a big bowl, say, um, versus say, you know, on the South side or Southeast aspect. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, we have we can manage the terrain a little bit, um, but ultimately it comes down to you know the um, exposure. Mm -hmm. Eric, what would you say your your most favorite part of your your current job or your current research is? Um, I mean, aside from being outside, <laughs> I think that's why we all we all do this, right? Um, you know, I 
I mean, obviously, I think that's the first one. But the second uh, best part is um, is the challenges, and you know, to uh, as long as the challenges aren't too great, and you know, the the consequences aren't too high. I think you know the challenges are, are really kind of fun to um, to work out and to you know to have these questions and try and figure out these questions and to basically pick it you know pick the issue apart and kind of move through and progress um, through the problem to you know even if you don't find a quote unquote answer maybe you'll have just a better understanding um, and that hopefully drives you know some of the decision making in the future so. Yeah, I guess, you know, basically the problem solving part of it um, for both the research and the forecasting end, um, I think is probably the second, second or best part. <laughs> it's up there. <laughs> Eric, I'd like to hear about some, you know, sort of, I call them watershed moments or pivotal moments in your career from when you were first a ski patroller in, in Lake Tahoe and going through both a master's and and now a PhD program at MSU, um, as well as, you know, lots of experience working in the snow and avalanche realm as a forecaster for both public advisories and um, advisories to, to keep uh, road workers safe. So I was just wondering if you had any, any stories to share. In particular, you know, in the last avalanche review, uh, you wrote an article and you talk about the evaluation of our professional experience. You talked about how our risk tolerance rises in the avalanche arena until we sort of get the smackdown in the way of an accident or a close call, maybe our own or somebody we know or, or even somebody we don't know that was doing a similar, similar thing to what we often do in work or play. So I was, uh, I was hoping you could just talk about this process and and how you personally keep it in check. Um, so yeah, can you share a story or yeah. any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's, I think there's been a lot of uh, watershed moments um, for me, you know, personally, of course, in my career. And, you know, I think they can sort of be um, you know, broken down into, I guess, at least for me, two, two sort of uh, categories. One being, you know, were there any moments where you, you sort of realize, you know, where the work path might go? And then the other is, you know, because we risk tolerance is such a big part of our, uh, our work and our careers. Um, I think that's the second category is, you know, have there been any moments where, um, as you mentioned, you know, you, uh, how our risk tolerance might change or our, our perspectives might change. Um, and so, you know, in terms of the first one, I'll address quickly, I guess there's, you know, there's the sort of pivotal moments. I don't know it's if there's any, you know, one instance, um, and in, that's sort of changed perhaps where, um, my sort of work path has gone or, or career has gone. Um, but, but probably rather, you know, mentors, um, and folks that have influenced me, you know, to a point where I realized, wow, like this is, this is really fun work. Um, and, you know, I, I really like, I really like the work and, you know, it's, it's usually been the person that sort of, um, I guess influenced me, you know, that, that sort of reaffirmed why I wanted to continue doing this work. Um, so more of on, along the mentor side, um, and, you know, that's been, um, 
I don't know. That's been really important. And again, in my, my working career and in my personal life too, because a lot of those folks are friends mm -hmm. um, or have become friends. And so I think, you know, there's that part, but then in terms of the risk tolerance um, and sort of what I wrote about in the, the one article um, is, you know, there's, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's, uh, you know, Tremper in uh, his books has sort of showed the uh, experience versus, uh, oh, risk tolerance uh, graph. And he sort of showed, you know, that um, we're sort of naive in the beginning. And then we take an avalanche class and, you know, our, our risk tolerance drops and then it sort of rises a little bit more and then until we have a close call. So that that's sort of what I'm referencing there. Um, and I think, you know, for... Um, for me personally, there, there have been very pivotal moments. Um, uh, you know, one, I was patrolling and out with, uh, with a friend on a day off, um, and, uh, um, triggered an avalanche, um, it was actually a hard slab and I was at the bottom already in a safe spot. Um, but he, uh, he was able to actually ride it out and, basically stay on top, um, on some pretty big blocks. So that was, you know, the first avalanche that I was, um, personally involved with, you know, in a non-work setting, um, without, you know, intentionally triggering it. And, uh, so I would say that that was, you know, that was certainly one. And then, um, yeah, the other was probably, uh, you know, while, um, while working, uh, forecasting for the avalanche center here, public forecasts, um, caught in a small avalanche and wasn't fully buried, but was, was very surprised. And, you know, in hindsight shouldn't have been. Um, but I, you know, I sort of attribute that to a, as practitioners and researchers, we're always out there to get the information. Um, and, you know, so that we have a good sense of what's going on so that we can communicate that, you know, whether it be to the public or to the rest of the patrol, for instance. Um, and so I think, you know, I call it the desire to acquire where, you know, we, we really want this information. Um, and you might, again, it's just one of those human factors where we might overlook other things. Um, so, you know, I think that was the second pivotal moment. Um, and then more recently, and I, I talk about this in the article, um, on a personal side where, you know, a good friend, um, a very good friend of mine was killed in an avalanche in, um, 2017 on January 5th. And, you know, this sort of, for me, sparked this, uh, I don't know, this line of questioning in terms of what does experience really mean? And, and I've had a lot of long conversations, um, with others about what, you know, what experience means in our industry and in the avalanche world. And, you know, there is there a difference between experience and expertise. And in particular, you know, my friend, uh, Ben, who died, he was, I would, you know, say very experienced. Um, and he, uh, you know, he was a, a, a firefighter, um, for his job. So he dealt with, you know, risk tolerance, um, on the job as well. And so, and we, we had conversations about risk tolerance and especially with, with families. And, um, you know, I have two young boys and he, uh, he had a young, a young boy as well. Um, and so we, you know, as he, and his son is, is quite young and, um, we sort of talked about him being a new father and how, you know, risk tolerance changes. And, um, so yeah, I'd say that, you know, those are certainly moments. And then of course that plays into not just my personal risk tolerance, um, but also my, you know, my career in terms of, you know, 
where does or how does my risk tolerance change um, you know on a daily basis but also throughout my life um, in my in my career and you know being outside and again we were out there a lot and so the probability increases that something might happen um, and so you know it just sort of um, gets me thinking a lot about you know my own career and um, you know sort of where you know, where my experiences brought me thus far and also how it's played into, um, you know, the decisions I've made. And, uh, I guess I have no, no clear answer, um, aside from, you know, I think it's important for us to just continually reevaluate, um, you know, our, our decision-making, but also our risk tolerance and, um, you know, why are we doing these things both personally and in the work realm? Yeah, there's, there certainly is no black and white to this game, is there? No, definitely not. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I, just yesterday, in fact, I was uh, I was out on a run in the park. Uh, we actually went up to the mountain, um, Stanton Mountain, where Ben died, and it was I was with the uh, uh, the other friend who was with Ben at, um, at the time. And, you know, we started talking about um, sort of just the... Uh, you know, and we all sort of know this, but we, we work in a really poor feedback environment and, um, you know, we don't necessarily know how close we were to that line, um, when we do get away with it. Whereas, you know, his example, and it's a good one, I think for, for those mountain bikers out there where we're riding down the trail and, you know, maybe you bobble a little bit, but you recover and you're like, whoo, I, you know, I was really close to eating it right there. And, you know, so you kind of have, a little bit more feedback in that realm at least where you're like, all right, like I knew I was, I was close to, um, to casing it, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm all right. I made it. Whereas, you know, in the, uh, in, in the snow world and avalanche world, you know, it's, we, we often, I think don't know. Um, and that's because there's a lot of uncertainty and, um, you know, we can, we can dig and, and that's important. And, and, you know, that certainly, um, helps us, you know, understand where, what's going on, because if we didn't, we'd have, you know, no clue. Um, but, you know, at the same time, um, I think it's important for us to, you know, to, to recognize, um, just that there is uncertainty and, you know, for a variety of reasons and, uh, to, to really, I guess, focus on, on that, the level of uncertainty when we, when we're out there again, for both work and play and, and really kind of, key in on, uh, you know, how that uncertainty, um, how we should factor that into our decisions. You got to know what you don't know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let me know when you do. <laughs> right. Well, Eric, uh, thanks a lot for sitting down with me today. I think, uh, it's been great chatting with you. Any, any shout outs you want to give to any other collaborators of any of this research or other folks in the, in the park that you work with or, Anything like that? Um, yeah, there's always, I mean, you know, <laughs> there's always too many people to, to, to acknowledge. Um, and, and just because again, you know, it's, it's such a, a team effort and, uh, um, you know, so I, yeah, certainly, I mean, all of my collaborators, um, mm -hmm. you know, Yordi Hendricks who are working with at MSU, Carl Brooklyn, um, colleagues at the USGS, Greg Peterson, um, my supervisor, Dan Fager, you know, all folks that are, working with me on these research projects. Um, and then locally here, you know, certainly the folks at the Flathead Avalanche Center um, and the uh, the friends of the Flathead Avalanche Center. And they're, you know, mostly because they're, 
they're doing an amazing job of, of, uh, really educating and spreading the, the word of, of what the avalanche center is and does and, and really, uh, meeting the needs of the community, um, more recently. And that's been, that's been awesome. So, yeah. And of course, all of my, my coworkers at the USGS. Awesome. Well, uh, you certainly live in a, live and work in a beautiful area here, Eric. Uh, it's time to crack a 10 barrel trail <laughs> of beer and, and, uh, watch the beautiful Montana sunset here. Yeah. Sounds good. And, uh, yeah, thanks. I, I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Awesome. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Eric. I know I did. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Also, thanks to the supporters of the show, TAS Gazex, 10 Barrel Brewing, and Black Diamond Peeps. I couldn't do it without y'all. Please go and rate and review the show on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to these podcasts on. It does really help. In addition, reach out to me. Let me know if you have any questions for these upcoming interviews going on in the next week or two. Uh, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Uh, we'll be posting some pictures from the fall interview tour where Arlo Dog and I will be venturing around Colorado. Music today was performed by Grizz. That track was getting live. That's what brought us into the podcast today. And sending us off is Sun Squabby with the track Just A Little. Check those guys out on social media and the internet. Uh, they're on SoundCloud. Really appreciate the opportunity to highlight some of their music. The podcast comes out on the 1st and the 15th of every month. So make sure you subscribe. Um, on iTunes or, or whatever platform you're using and tune in next time on October 15th for the second episode of the third season of the Avalanche Hour podcast. Pretty excited. I'm not quite sure which which interview I'll be highlighting on the 15th but I'll be sure to let you know and if you're subscribed you won't even miss a beat. Until then, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.